It's an interesting thought. In a world that is very good at polishing the surfaces, what we long for is a God who specializes in cleaning things from the inside out. I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of the tradition of Santa Lucia? Any Swedes in the, in the audience might, might be a little bit familiar with this. But there are many churches of Swedish origin that have carried on the tradition of Santa Lucia for many years. The legend of Santa Lucia began in Syracuse, which is a city on the island of Sicily, somewhere around 300 A.D. It's believed that during a time when the Romans were persecuting Christians, that a woman named Lucia made a silent vow to devote her life to honoring God by serving the poor. Her mother did not know about this vow since it was a silent vow, and her mother made arrangements for a promised marriage to her daughter, for her daughter to a man who was not a Christian. But when the time come, uh, came to co commence with the marriage, Lucia refused, and in a defiant way, she spent her entire dowry on the poor. Lucia ended up being put on trial, and she refused to renounce her Christian beliefs. She was to be burned at the stake, but the legend says that when the guards tried to light her on fire, the fire wouldn't light. So they had to find another way to put her to death, the death of a martyr of, for the faith. Now, there are several theories about how this particular legend of Lucia came to Sweden, which is a long way from Sicily, and where this is still celebrated today. One version of that legend centers on a terrible famine many years ago, and on December 13th, a well-lit ship laden with food landed on the, the coast of Lake Vanern in Sweden, and on that ship was a woman dressed all in white with a red ribbon around her waist, and it was said that there was a glow all around her head. The ship disappeared as soon as it was unloaded. It was thought that Lucia had visited Sweden in their time of need and then had disappeared after bringing all that food. By the time of the late 1800s, this Swedish uh, custom and belief became an Advent tradition, a tradition that had developed where the eldest daughter in each family would wear a long white dress, a red ribbon around her waist, and then there would be a, a crown with some greens in it and a whole bunch of candles. Now, I see the panic look on your face. We're not introducing a, a new Advent uh, ceremony here, uh, but this would be done in family after family, and eventually it made its way from the home into the church. And so there are a number of Lutheran and Covenant churches that still practice this, so much so that when my wife was a young teenager, she was chosen to be the Santa Lucia girl in their particular church. And she marched through the congregation one day with this crown with a whole bunch of candles on it. And somewhere in the family archives, there's actually a picture of my Sue with candles, something like that one. And we look at that and shudder, thinking, you've got to be kidding. You're going to put that much flame all around a child's head? I think if we did that today, we'd probably be reported to the authorities and, and, and there'd be some kind of child advocate that would be all over us if we did that. When I think of traditions like that, I find it fascinating that many people celebrate traditions not knowing where they started or what they were based on, but they get carried on from year to year and passed down from family to family. And I told you that story this morning to let you know where we're headed 
today, we're going to look at a scene where man-made traditions were in conflict with following the instructions of Jesus. And this is the first part of a series that we're calling Healthy on the Inside, because the principle that we're going to look at today is the foundational bedrock for how we develop spiritual health in our own lives. This principle is what I'm calling the inside-out principle. It's that God works on the inside first, while most of religion in the world always polishes up the surface and gives you instructions about how to clean up the outside of life instead. Now, I want to start with two questions before we dive into the text. The first question is, can traditions be good? What would you say? Yes, there are many traditions that are good. So don't think of this as an anti-traditionalist message. The key is when the traditions are in conflict with what God really wants, right? There are a number of, of ways that we discover that traditions are good. Business and thought leader Frank Sonnenberg writes about seven, traditions, uh, seven reasons why traditions are important in our day. These are just a few of them. Uh, traditions provide a sense of comfort and belonging. We like routine. It allows us to feel like we're grabbing a hold of something. Traditions reinforce values such as freedom, faith, integrity, education, personal responsibility, and work ethics. Tradition provides a forum for role models that help us in life or for celebrating things that really matter in life. So traditions can be really good. They can also get in the way. Here's the second question. Jesus comes into conflict with the Pharisees. So who are the Pharisees? If you're around church enough, we, we talk about this concept uh, of Pharisees. In fact, when you think of the way the word Pharisee is used in our culture, is it positive or negative? negative? Almost overwhelmingly negative. Why did that happen? Let me give you a little background on the Pharisees. They were a religious society of leaders in Israel who opposed the modernization of Jewish life and practices. So they were opposed to change. The name Pharisee actually rises from a Hebrew term that literally means to be separated out or to be separated from. And it tells us a lot about the Pharisees. Somewhere about 500 years before Jesus, there was a group of Jewish people who became very, very passionate about Jewish law in the Old Testament. And they developed a detailed code of 613 rules that regulated Jewish life down to small details. Who's that guy that's got 12 rules of life and that got really uh, popular lately? 613 rules for life. I'm not, I don't think that would sell the same way. But their operating principle was to create traditions that acted like hedges around God's laws so that there were all of these things that got in the way to keep you from breaking some law that was really important. So their intent was good. The impact was disastrous because it made Jewish life full of all kinds of picky, overbearing rules that were man-made rules. The purpose of the traditions was good. The impact was not so good. And in the process, the traditions became more central to life than God's own commands. By the time of the Second Temple era, that's the temple that King Herod built, there were said to be around 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. And they were concentrated mostly around the city of Jerusalem, which was a center of worship life. And get this, 
they were popular. If I had asked that same question, was the connotation negative or positive to a first century audience, they would have said overwhelmingly, these are the good guys. This is popular. The Pharisees were seen as people who were regular men, had everyday jobs, but they loved studying the Bible, and that they were trying to coach people in finding ways in which uh, they could follow the wisdom of God. However, the Pharisees also got in the way of the people and got in the way of, the, of their following God because their rules were almost impossible to follow. They were also popular because they were seen as a contrast from the Sadducees, who are more of the intellectual elite of Israel, where these folks were more approachable. There's one key illustration that comes from this morning's text that involves their elaborate hand-washing traditions, which is part of the background of all of this. As you are reading this, you might have thought, or be tempted to think, what's wrong with washing your hands before lunch or before dinner? How many of you were raised at a home where your mom taught you what my mom taught me, wash your hands before you eat, right? I do that. I live by that as often as possible. There are times we don't. There are times you go through a drive-through and, and you don't have that opportunity, right? But for the most part, we do. This is not about hygiene. Something else is going on. So we need to know what. With the Pharisees, before they would eat, there were elaborate traditions. They would hold out their hands with the fingers up and the palms re resting down a little bit towards the body on an angle. And somebody would pour one and a half eggshells of water over the tips of their fingers. And it would run down their hands and onto the wrist and their clothing would absorb the rest of it. Then they would turn their hands over, fingertips down, and leaning the other way, and somebody, again, would pour one and a half uh, eggshells of water over the backside of their hands. And the idea with that was they thought that they were ceremonially purified by going through this custom. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It had to do with their perception of the world. Most often they did this as they were coming back from the market, which is what Mark mentions in this text. So the thought there was, what if they came in contact with somebody who was not from their faith, who was not from their culture, you know, one of those Gentile people who are outside of Judaism. And if they even inadvertently got uh, touched by them in the process of dealing with the marketplace, then they would be defiled ceremonially they would need to be cleansed before they could eat you got the picture they want to be so separate from the world that even the thought that a, a person outside of their faith would touch them then they would somehow be spiritually defiled in that process so again this was not about hygiene it was about a ritual and the appearances that were associated with the ritual the backdrop is that conflict arose when Jesus' disciples did not observe this particular hand-washing ritual. The Pharisees had come to Galilee from Jerusalem because Jesus was attracting attention, and they wanted to know, is he the real thing, and is he the Messiah? Because if he's the Messiah, of course he would keep their customs because they were right about everything. That's the way they thought. That's the way they saw the world. What were the disciples doing? They were walking through the fields, and they would pick at heads of grain. And as they picked off the heads of grain, they would rub them in their hands, their unwashed hands, 
And in doing so, they would separate the stalk on the outside, the chaff, so the kernel of wheat would be identified, and they'd pop those in their mouths, and they would eat them. And the Pharisees looked at that, and on the basis of Jesus allowing his disciples to do that, they objected and thought, you can't be the real thing, and these disciples of yours are not following God because they're not keeping our customs. Got it? That's the picture. All right, on that backdrop, three lessons that we get from Jesus, what Jesus teaches us about traditions. Here's the first lesson. It is possible to be religious and fail to honor God. It is very easy, in fact, to be religious in life and yet fail to honor God. We pick this up in verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Oh boy, he's calling them out now. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus is just quoted from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And then he adds this statement. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. The question at hand was, why don't your disciples live, uh, live according to the tradition of the elders? The question shows us what was at stake. Jesus' popularity was soaring. This is why the Pharisees came from Jerusalem to check him out. They were watching to see if Jesus endorsed their traditions, which in their minds would prove that he was the real thing. And they opposed change. And they opposed modernization at all costs. So what was at risk was the tradition of the elders. If Jesus was allowed to teach something new that bucked the tradition of the elders, their whole game was up. So Jesus did something very wise. Remember I told you that it was about 500 years before the time of Christ that the, the seeds of this Pharisee movement began to rise as the 613 rules were developed. So Jesus quotes a prophet who wrote 600 years before his time. In other words, Isaiah wrote more than 100 years or at least 150 years before the first strains of this movement even started. And he quotes Isaiah about a biblical precedent that was older than their traditions. Extremely wise on his, his part. Jesus, in doing so, pointed out three dangers of ritualistic religion. The first is the danger of honoring with our lips, but not with our hearts. The second has to do with worship practices that merely follow man-made rules or rites. And the third is the result of those two, in the process, letting go of God's commands in order to uphold merely human traditions. So Jesus wants us to know that it's possible to be religious and have all kinds of rules and customs that keep us occupied, but not honoring God in the process. Here's the second lesson. It is also possible to use religion to evade God's commands. We can use religion in a way to skip out on something that God is really trying to teach us. So look what he says here. Verse 9 to 13 is all one section. Jesus continued. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Where's that come from? Ten Commandments, right? And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, he's calling out their traditions now, but you say, if anyone declares 
that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban. We need to know what that means, and Mark's going to explain it right now. He says, that is devoted to God. That's what that term means. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So Jesus brings up the tradition of korban. The Pharisees' concept of uh, the Pharisees' concept of korban was very well known among their customs. It meant that whatever was designated with this term korban or devoted to God could not be used for some other purpose because now it belongs to God, at least in their minds. This would be like you or me designating items as future donations in a person's will. It can't be used for anything else. I've, I've decided it's going to go in that direction. Or, or maybe like having a living trust set up where you give away your home that's going to be sold off after you die to some charity group. But for now, you can live in that as long as you have breath, right? So they're saying, in effect, when they would call something Korban, they still had control of it. They still had use of it, but it was going to be given away to the temple someday off in the future. Therefore, if I declared that all of my financial resources are going to go in that direction, I do not have the resources to be burdened with helping mom and dad in their old age. See the corruption that was going on in the Pharisees' hearts? He's saying, this is what you guys are doing. You're using your religion to skip out on even the Ten Commandments, one of the, the most basic Ten Commandments that, that in any society would be looked at as a good thing. Jesus', Jesus verdict was that their traditions were nullifying God's law. Now, this had to come as a huge shock because the Pharisees were seen as the people who cared more than anybody else about the details of God's laws. And here is Jesus calling them out for inventing ways to evade God's laws. And he even added, and you do many things like that. In other words, I've just brought up one very obvious situation I could go on, Jesus is saying. Now, here's what, what's interesting about that. We still do that today in some ways. There are people in our world, in our circles, that from time to time use religion to evade God's commands today. I'll give you a couple of instances that have hit the newspapers within the last year, not making stuff up. When some of the prosperity gospel proponents insist on buying new top-of-the-line private jets in order to cause their ministry style to go with elegance and say that God told the people in the congregation they're supposed to pay for this top-of-the-line Learjet. I got news for you. That's using religion in order to pad somebody else's ego. It's really not necessary. Why, why couldn't they fly coach or even first class rather than the expense of owning your own jet, right? One of those articles cited one of these, I'm not going to give his name, but one of these high-level um, TV evangelists is saying, well, wait a minute. If we rode coach in the regular cabin with everybody else, what if there are people there who aren't Christians or they've got demonic problems, like somehow we're going to be the only ones attacked in the plane if that were to happen. It might rub off on us. What's that sound like? The Pharisees. I've got news for you. 
Jesus regularly poked the Pharisees in the nose. And he would, poke, he would poke the Pharisees that exist in our culture, in our church, in our systems today too. I believe that with all my heart. Here's another one. When leaders, claim, when leaders of religion claim sexual privileges because they are doing God's work. In other words, saying, it's okay for me to do this with you because I'm doing so many good things for the kingdom. Do you know how many times that gets played out in this world of ours? That's what got Jim Baker in trouble more than 30 years ago when the Jim and Tammy show went down. It's what ended the ministry of Kip McKean with the International Church of Christ and the Boston Church of Christ when the Boston Globe did a spotlight interview exposing all that stuff. And there are people who are part of our fellowship who got deeply hurt by the collapse of that movement. Absolutely, fundamentally dishonest. No other way of explaining that. And corrupt. I've got more on my list, but I'm just not going to go more negative. It happens. Why bring it up at all? You, as part of this church, know the Bible well enough, and even if you're new, you will know the Bible well enough soon enough if you stick around, that you should not be fooled by stuff like this. And we have to talk about it in order for people to be aware. There are people who will use religion for false causes. That doesn't devalue Christianity it reveals what's going on inside of those people. Does that make sense? You with me still? Okay, third lesson. The first one is, it is possible to be religious and fail to honor God. The second is, it's possible to use religion to evade God's commands. Here's the third. It's all about your heart. It's all about your heart. So look at what he says here in verses 14, 15, 16. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. You hear the urgency in Jesus' voice? Listen to me, everyone, and understand this, he says. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that defiles you. This is so important that Jesus states this twice. First, he said this to the whole crowd. Then later on, he has the disciples inside the home where they're staying, and they ask him to explain, and he takes it a little bit deeper. They saw this as a parable, and they wanted to know its meaning. Jesus thought it was pretty clear. <laughs> and so he says to them, are you so dull? <laughs> I love this. This is another reason why we know that the New Testament isn't a made-up document. They would have whitewashed it if this was supposed to make the disciples look good. You know, they just don't in so many cases. Are you so dull, he says, don't you see that nothing that enters you from outside can defile you? For it doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach and then out of your body. And then he adds, what comes out of you is what defiles you. Let's, let's just be real obvious about what's going on here. Jesus is not giving a biology lesson. He's not talking about the digestive tract and, and all of that. In fact, this isn't about hygiene. This is about spiritual health. So what he's saying is, there's nothing from outside of you that can make you spiritually defiled. Yeah, he knew you can eat some bad fruit and you're going to get sick and throw it up. He wasn't saying that that's not true. But he's saying there's nothing outside of you that you can take into your body that spiritually defiles you. What defiles us is what comes out of, and he's speaking poetically, out of the heart. 
right? So the old world, they used the heart as a seat of emotions. We still do that a lot in our culture, even though we know that the plot, thought process comes from the brain, right? So Jesus wanted to clean up the heart and the mind first, and he wasn't worried about the externals. Whereas most religions in the world are all about trying to fix the externals all the stuff that you have to do to clean yourself up, we become like the line in the video, really good at polishing the external things so that things look really good. Folks, we do that as a culture. How much time do we spend on ourselves fixing the outside? And Jesus is saying, it's nice that you look good here on Sunday morning and you smell good, that's wonderful too. But it's more important that the inside gets even more attention than the outside. And he doesn't worry about starting with the outside because we can be fooled when the outside looks good and the inside is rotten. But when the inside is good, eventually the outside's going to mirror what's going on inside, too. Does that make sense? Okay. The inside-out principle teaches us that Jesus came to change hearts and minds. It is far easier to control your, your outward habits and your outward behavior. It is harder to control the attitudes of the heart. And so we need help. The Pharisees were focused on behavioral expectations, but they ignored the heart. And Jesus' illustration about Korban exposed what was going on in their lives. Jesus came to absolutely revolutionize the heart, which eventually shapes the way we live. None of this means that parents shouldn't try to shape the behavior of their children, but they should be even more concerned about shaping the heart, cultivating the heart. This doesn't mean that we should reject all moral campaigns in society or government. Sometimes those are good things. But we must realize that moral legislation cannot change or fix the human heart. We must lead people to Jesus because only Jesus can fix the human heart, and only when we yield to the Holy Spirit do we see progress in that area. And even still, we need to help each other grow. That's why we need church, to be honest. So here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus came to transform hearts and minds, not just to give us better morals. He wanted to thoroughly, fundamentally, radically change us from the inside out. And so Jesus began at the end of this section to point to some of the sins of the heart. He says, from your hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you, he says. Why does he put evil thoughts first? I think it's real simple. Some of these other actions start as thoughts in the heart, in the mind. Perhaps it's the root of all of them. Sexual immorality and adultery are cultivated in the heart and the mind first. In fact, the word used for sexual immorality here is also kind of a punch in the nose. It's the word porneia. It was an umbrella term in that day that meant every kind of sexual deviance. It's the word from which we get pornography, which is probably the one that's hidden the most, but probably devastating more homes 
in our culture today than just about anything else because it's done in secret. It'll never impact anybody. It goes to lie, but it pollutes the inside. That's, that's the point Jesus is saying. It pollutes the inside. You can't help but think about things differently when the inside is infected. Murder and theft are actions that are cultivated first in the heart, and the list goes on. Here the point, here's the point, the, that Jesus alone is the one who's able to transform the heart. And Jesus died for all of that stuff that sometimes we hold on to and that holds us back. A person can fool us with outward performance but still have a very sick heart. Yet, there's hope because when we surrender to Jesus, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we confess our sins, Jesus can heal and reshape and fundamentally redo the inner workings of the heart. Jesus came to transform hearts and minds, not just to give us better morals. So I began with a question. I want to end with a question. Here it is. Will we surrender whatever is holding us back to Jesus? Will we yield to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit whispers, moves, or even shouts at us? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to end with a short prayer and some time for silence in there for you to respond to God in whichever way that he's been already calling out to you. Maybe there's a time of confession that needs to come. Maybe it's thanking him for his grace. Maybe it's asking for help in whatever that cycle is that you're caught in. The point isn't judgment here today. The point is take the time to invite him to work even more strongly on the inside than ever before. Because when Jesus remakes the inside, the outside will follow along. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the opportunity for us to examine the words of Jesus and to realize Jesus wasn't only concerned about people that we would label as Pharisees. He doesn't want us to be Pharisees either. Thank you for dying for all of the sins that hold us back, trip us up, push us down, trap us into cycles that cause us shame and frustration and that cause hurt in our lives. Lord, we want to surrender to you. We want to ask that your spirit will speak. confessing our sins. God, my prayer on behalf of our congregation is that throughout this day you will whisper, you'll bring things back into memory. You'll tell us over and over again that you never give up on any one of us. And that the things that cause us shame today can be triumphed over by your power, your transformation work, your 
love and your grace. Help us not to hold on to anything that would get in the way. Help us to strip away every tradition that is not conducive to following you. That we would fulfill the purposes you have for each and every one of us. And therefore know your joy and your pleasure and your power for living. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. This is step one in the process of being healthy on the inside, to understand the way that the inside-out principle works and that Jesus is the author of it. We're going to ask our ushers to come and we have an opportunity to respond to God in, in the giving of our tithes and offerings and gifts. And we've got one final song that the team's going to lead us in. This is called Build My Life, and it's, it's a prayer to him. Build my life around you. Build my life on your truth. Build my life on that which will never change.
no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those Thank you for worshiping us with us this morning. We pray that you have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.